If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Pete Wardgen. And I'm here today with someone who knows the subject we're going to talk about today, how to value a property inside and out, the star buyer's agent, Amy Lunardi. Welcome, Amy. Oh, thanks, Pete. I am looking forward to this episode. This is something I do on a daily basis. And gosh, I think I've, I've valued thousands and thousands and thousands of properties over the years. I guess uh, having done it for so long and so many times, uh, you're the ideal person to talk us through this subject. So uh, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. And today we're going to take a plain English look at how to value a property. So let's uh, make a start, Amy. So um, I guess uh, let's talk first about how assets are valued. I think if you if you looked in the stock market, people would say the value of a company is the sum of the future uh, cash flows, but discounted back to today's date. But buying a home is a bit different because the cash flow for most home, home buyers is actually out. You've got things like repairs, got the mortgage to pay. And in fact, I can remember nearly 25 years ago now, in the late 1990s, having this debate with some investment analysts. And they we're basically saying that the future values of a cash flow from a property is lower than you'd get in stocks and therefore house prices have to fall. Um, <laughs> but Amy, but I guess for, for most people, well, it hasn't worked out that way, but for most people who buy a home, they're, they're really buying for different reasons. They're putting a roof over their head. It's security of tenure and also so they don't have to pay rent, the value of which can be pretty hard to compute, but also because they expect the land values to go up with population growth and as construction costs rise over time, the capital value of the home will go up as well. So I guess that most people who come to you to buy a property are buying with the expectation that it will be worth more in the future, I suppose. Well, that's a that's certainly a bonus. And it's not necessarily the overarching reason why someone buys a property. As an investor, yes, absolutely. Uh, but as a home buyer, there's a lot more to it than just um, 
the the dollar value of it now versus the future. There's a lot of intangible values. So when we're approaching considering how much is a property actually worth, we can consider it from two main aspects when buying a home. The first one is, or even investment as well. The first one is how much is that property worth on paper? So in other words, how much is that worth based on other comparable sales, based on current market conditions? What could it potentially sell for? But then further to that, what is that property potentially worth to you? Because there's so many intangible factors with property and what a property is worth to one person could be worth a completely different amount to someone else, depending on how many boxes it ticks, uh, how long have they been looking, how, um, how much do they love that property. So I help my clients figure out both of those things. And sometimes those two values are very similar. And sometimes they're a little bit different. So in this episode, we're going to run through that tangible sort of like on paper analysis and then also how to figure out how much that property might be worth for you. This is something we talked a little bit uh, back um, in one of the foundation episodes. It's a bit of a heart versus head thing. I think um, if you're looking at an investor, they're basically expecting the future capital growth to compensate for maybe some slightly more modest cash flows. Home buyers are expecting to own an unencumbered asset in retirement where they don't have to pay ever increasing rent to a landlord. That's the kind of the cold hard numbers thing. But as you mentioned, um, sometimes people buy for more emotional reasons. Um, and then there's things like school zones that people need to get into. Uh, sometimes people fall in love with a property. And I think I mentioned on a previous episode, uh, reading some of the property books from years ago, I've probably got some on my bookshelf right here, where people said, yeah, I'll never buy property emotionally, you know, always just make it cold, hard numbers, which <laughs> I get what they were trying to say, but that's not really how people buy property. People do buy, buy very emotionally, um, especially when it comes to buying the family home. Um, so let's take a start, then, Amy. Um, so if you're looking at valuing a property you want to buy, I guess the starting point, as you mentioned, would be looking at comparable sales of properties nearby in the same street, the same suburb. So how would you go about um, doing a comparable sales analysis? Yeah. So first and foremost, this is this is the way that we value residential properties. So whether we're a buyer's agent or a, a, a regular buyer, I'll call you out there looking at properties or even a bank valuer, this is the standard way we do this. And it is easier said than done, by the way. I'm going to explain how to do that, but it's not an easy process. And some properties are more straightforward than others. Some properties have a lot of comparable sales that are really similar and you can find a lot of really good benchmarks. And then others are much more challenging. Maybe they're a little bit quirky or maybe they're in an area with low sales volume or maybe you just can't find any very close comparable sales and they can be really tricky. And even after doing this thousands of times, I'll sometimes still come across properties where I say, look, this is a really hard one. I'll have to be a bit more creative with my comparables or go back further in time. But the way that you approach doing a comparable sales analysis is by having a really good look at the property that you're studying. So understanding all of the features of that property, having a good insight into that location, you know, how good is that part of the suburb compared to other parts of that area. And then looking back in time, using the sold section of realestate.com.au or domain, that is your gold mine for information. And then selecting ideally around six to 10 
properties which have sold, which are comparable to the property that you're looking at. And when I say comparable, we're talking about starting off with the more high level things like the location, the number of bedrooms, the type of property. And then later on, we go into the, the more um, the more specific details like, um, you know, if it has an extra toilet or if the kitchen's renovated or something like that. But the purpose of doing that is to then establish a kind of trend. And this is why we try and use six to 10 comparable sales. Anything more than that, you'll start to confuse yourself. Anything less, you've got maybe not enough data points. And then from there, comparing the property we're looking at to those sales, you do this really thoroughly. You put it all in price order and you compare each one and you spend a good amount of time on this, Pete. You spend like an hour at least. If you haven't spent an hour, you may be not being thorough enough. And then once you've done all of that comparison, put this in a spreadsheet or a Word document, however your mind works, you should ideally be able to figure out somewhere where your property sits in terms of value. And it's not going to be an exact dollar amount. Like this property is worth $1.432 million. It's usually going to be more of a range. And then you might say, oh, I've got high confidence here because I've got a lot of good comparable sales. Or you might say, oh, I've got lowish confidence, but these are still the best that I've been able to do. So that's the way that you approach a comparable sales analysis. Is that so how like you do that. it, Pete? As an accountant, <laughs> I love the idea of uh, spreadsheets. So basically just ranking properties uh, by uh, what you uh, see to be the market value. And then you can place your your uh, desired property on that list. And that should give you an idea of how to rank those properties. I think uh, you made an important point there that some properties are a lot easier to value than others. So if you've got a big block of units or apartments where there's been dozens of sales, it's pretty easy. It's fairly, um, I guess, um, well, it's not very uh, subjective then. You've basically got a lot of sales that are very similar. And then it will come down to things like, is there a parking space? Uh, even is there a storage cage included? Which properties have got the best aspect or view? Uh, but you can probably uh, price those properties or value them down to a pretty narrow range because you've got lots of recent sales to compare against and all of the properties are in the end quite similar if they're in the same building. Um, you've got a fair idea of where the market is pricing them. But as you said there, for a family home in a suburb, well, the properties uh, when you're walking, uh, let's uh, make an example, if you're walking through the inner west of um, Sydney or eastern suburbs like every house could be different and so it's yeah, not exactly. quite so easy then because as you said there's an emotional value attached to some uh, styles or some types of property then you've got the different land sizes different aspects and so on so um obviously in some cases easier to do uh, than in others now you mentioned they're making a list of comparable sales where should people go to to get that information so there's some of it is publicly available on the main listing portals, if you look in the sold section. Um, but often you see, especially in Sydney, it seems that the price is withheld or you don't get the full information. Um, so where should people go to find that source of information to fill in some of that missing info? Well, as buyers, agents, you and I, Pete, we use a lot of paid subscription websites where we can just really quickly get this information. But as a buyer, yes, you could do that if you wanted to sign up to RP Data, but you don't have to. If there is an undisclosed sale price, all you need to do is call the real estate agent. And in most cases, if you're polite, you can say to them, hey, I'm just doing a little bit of research. Do you mind if I ask what this property sold for? And if they say, oh, we can't disclose it exactly, you can say, can you give me a ballpark? That would be really helpful. 
And then if they won't do that, then there is a, list, a little bit of a hack where you can go into the sold section and put in a filter, just say 1 to 1.1 in the sold section. And if that property then comes up, you at least know it's sold for within that range. So don't give up just because it's undisclosed. Definitely do um, a bit of research yourself. And that kind of leads me into um, the next point I want to discuss, which is some mistakes you can easily make around valuations. And that's one mistake is ignoring a good comparable sale just because you can't get the price or you you can't be bothered calling the agent. Oh, and if that agent doesn't let you know, call another agent, ask another agent in the area, they might know. <laughs> um, but another mistake that I see quite often as well is people using not enough comparable sales or just using one or two comparable sales. And that can be really challenging in property because often sales have a reason behind them as to why they've sold for that price. And this is why we want to have six to 10, because then we can see more of a trend, gives us more um, confidence around that. So if you use, say, one sale, so we say, oh, I think my property is worth 600 grand because the one around the corner sold for that amount. Well, you don't know if that was a really motivated vendor that took the first offer that came through, or maybe there was eight people at the auction because no, nothing else was for sale and it got a really good price. And with valuing a property... That buyer who bought that property, maybe they would have been prepared to go to 650 or 680, but they got a really good deal. So is that really truly market value? It's really hard to say. So that is that's one of the mistakes that I often see when it comes to valuing properties. Pete, any mistakes that you commonly um, see happen when doing a comparable sales analysis? Yeah, that does make sense. I think one of the hardest things to quantify is uh, market conditions. I think... Um, Especially, for example, if you're looking at a list of comparable sales, but some of them sold, let's say, six months ago, um, and the market conditions have changed, which, um, as you know, they can change very quickly in real estate. Um, so you shouldn't necessarily expect that a property that sold six months ago, very similar to the one that you're looking to buy will sell for the same price today. Uh, there may have been some uh, capital growth or price growth in the intervening period or the sentiment in the market could have picked up uh, since that time or it might have declined it so i guess to some degree you have to have um your ears to the ground and have a feel for what's actually happening out there in the market is that a fair comment that is that is a fair comment and it's actually the hardest part of this whole process the hardest part is knowing what's happening in the market so that when you do do your comparable sales you can say okay well that one sold for six months ago but the market was softer there it was a couple of percent higher or a couple of percent less and property data is not actually that helpful in 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 these kind of situations because for starters property data lags and then also it is generally only segmented into houses and units. So if you're looking at townhouses, it's not as helpful. It's also not going to tell you how that property in that particular part of that suburb performed. Some suburbs, you've got really great areas which will grow much stronger and faster than other parts of that, those suburbs. So the only way to overcome this is by you really being out there on the ground and tracking sales, tracking results. And when you're doing that comparable sales analysis, you might actually really clearly see a trend. For example, you might see six months ago, these kind of properties seemed like they were selling for 700-ish and now they seem to be selling for about 730, 740. So that market's gone up. So when you're using those comparable sales, you can say, well, that was a softer market. So it is, it is challenging, 
but it's rewarding in that it will give you more confidence that when you do your comparable sales, you're more accurate. And then beyond that, once you've done your comparable sales analysis, what you also need to do is what's called a current market analysis to say, okay, what's happening in the current market? Have prices gone up a little bit? Have they come down? What sentiment like? How many buyers are out there? How quickly are properties selling? And also, how scarce is this property? Is there a bit of pent-up demand? Is there 10 others that are for sale like this at this point in time or is there only one and in which case it might go for a bit more? So you really need to understand all of these things to be able to give you a picture of what it's worth based on comparable sales and then what it might sell for based on what's happening in the current market. Combine those two things is the best position you can put yourself in to value a property. Perfect. And that, that makes perfect sense as well. So what about, um, Amy, if you've got a property that is somewhat unique or a property with unique aspects? So how do we treat these? So I guess on the negative side, you might have a property with, let's say, an easement or maybe a busy road nearby or possibly some noise. Um, but also some properties are unique with uh, good aspects, like it might have a unique view uh, or an aspect or water view. Um, maybe some potential to develop or add value. So uh, what do you do where you've got a property that just isn't like everything else that's been on the market and sold previously? Yeah, gosh, it is It is really tough. And like you've just said, you've got to compare like with like. So if you're looking at a main road property, ideally you're comparing them with other main road properties or at least trying to factor in some kind of discount. With unique properties, I will go back a bit further in time if I really need to. Um, bearing in mind that I've got a better uh, handle on market changes so I can apply those, you know, that growth or that decline a little bit. So I'll go back further in time or I might go to a different suburb which is nearby but still has similar demographics. Um, And sometimes I'll just have to get a little bit creative in terms of um, saying, okay, well, this one was a warehouse apartment with a cool vibe. I'll compare it to something which was maybe not a warehouse apartment but still had a bit of quirkiness to it. Um, and the, the short answer there it is, is, is that it can be really challenging, especially if you don't have the systems that we use, Pete, because we can uncover more information in there. But the most important thing to understand here is that if it is challenging for you to appraise, it can be also challenging for the bank or the bank valuer to appraise as well. So have a chat to your broker or your lender around the risks of bank valuation issues in those situations, um, just in case that valuer doesn't value it at the price that you have paid because there aren't limited comparable sales. So I'm hearing that you would normally look to come up with a a range of valuations rather than a a specific number. So you're not going down to decimal points. You're looking (laughs) at uh, maybe a range of prices that would be reasonable in the current market. Now, you mentioned an interesting point there, bank valuation. So when you buy a property that is financed with a mortgage, um, very often um, a bank value will be commissioned to go through and inspect the property and come up with a valuation for the bank just to ensure that you haven't overpaid for the property. Uh, now, I guess um, I've been in buyer's agency for a dozen years, Amy, and um, it doesn't happen often. Most often uh, the price that you pay for the property will be deemed by the bank to be the fair market value, especially if you bought at an auction and it's a, an open and transparent purchase. But um, very occasionally, I've seen uh, the bank valuations come in lower than the price that's been paid. And it's happened to me on a couple of occasions. Um, now, I guess there could be 
any number of reasons why you might get a value wrong. The, the times that it's happened to me and we've had to pull out on a property purchase, uh, so those were offers that were made subject to finance. Um, uh, it happened once during the Banking Royal Commission. Uh, we were looking at buying um, a block of units, not something we normally do, but uh, the bank didn't like it. They said um, this needs to be assessed on a commercial loan. Uh, basically, banks were very twitchy at the time. Another yeah. time we bought a property that was in a relatively new um, build and a sort of relatively new housing estate. And also the buyer was using a non-bank lender, um, which I think made the value a bit twitchy as well. The valuation just came in lower than what we'd offered for the property. They said that there are many comparable sales in the area. And uh, we had to pull out on the purchase. Annoyingly, it sold for the same price a week later. But it was <laughs> <positive>. basically, yeah, <laughs> it was basically nothing we could do. So, um, yeah. uh, so let's um, just explore that a little bit, um, yeah. Amy. So, why might a bank valuation be different to the price that you've paid? Well, like you said, it doesn't happen very often. Mm. Oh, I should say, these the are last... exceptions. That's twice in yeah. a dozen years. Uh, it's not It's not something you would expect, but it could happen potentially. Of course, but you do absolutely need to know that this is relevant because whenever you have a pre-approval, your pre-approval will always be subject to the bank valuing that property. And when we say the bank, they actually engage independent valuers to do this. Um, but in the last decade and over, over say, 1,300 purchases I've been involved with, I think I've seen bank valuations maybe uh, shortfalls four or five times. That's a that's that's very uncommon. And in all of those situations, we were prepared, and it was it was completely fine because I always educate my buyers about these risks. But bank valuers have much tighter um, uh, rules that they have to abide by. They have to look back within a certain period of time. They also have to use settled sales, which really is really frustrating. It makes it really hard because. The most recent sales are the most comparable and they might not have settled as yet. A good valuer, though, should and will take those into consideration, but they have to include settled sales. So if a bank valuer, for whatever reason, is doing these comparable sales and just can't support the price that you have paid, they can't find enough evidence, then there is a risk of that property bank valuation coming in lower than the price you've paid. And in which case, if you're subject to finance, you may have the right to terminate that contract or figure something else out. Um, but if you're not subject to finance, then you would either need to potentially go to a new lender, try and get another valuation, hope it comes back okay, or chip in extra funds or increase your loan. And if you don't have any of those options, then you need to assess those risks before you go into that purchase. But the bank is also not only valuing that property on the 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 value or the price, but also the type of property it is. So if that property is anything which the bank deems as risky, so this could be something like a non-residential zoned property. It could be an apartment less than 50 square metres. It could be a property which is a stratum title. So there are, or, or one that's um, near, say, big power transmission lines. Anything that could potentially re impact the resale of that property, the bank might be less excited about and therefore they might reject your application or they might ask you for a higher deposit. So you need to be really mindful of that before you go into all of this. Good point. So certainly in Queensland in recent years, uh, one of the, the hot subjects has been properties that have been subject to flood risk. And does that impact the resale value? If there's another flood in the future, could well do. And that 
that that could have an impact potentially and uh, bank valuers may have a different view from a home buyer uh, depending on the property in question. I think it's important to say the valuers don't always visit the property. Sometimes they'll do a desktop valuation, particularly if there's been plenty of comparable sales locally. They may, they may not need to visit the property. They could just do it from behind a desk. Um, occasionally when you're looking to uh, refinance a property, so if you've got some equity and you're refinancing, uh, that's another situation where a bank valuer may uh, come up with a valuation for your portfolio or property in question. Um, sometimes those valuations seem to be on the more conservative end. You would think that a market value of a property is simply a market value, but I suppose there's very little incentive well... to overvalue a property <laughs> when you're refinancing it. That's true. That's true. And when you're refinancing, it's essentially saying to the bank, hey, how much is this property worth? So how much are you going to lend me? But when you've purchased the property, that valuer is, is they are really trying to find sales to support the price that you've paid. You know, they're not out there to get you. They're out there to obviously do their job and protect protect the lender, but they are going to try to su- support that price if they can. So that's why the refinance ones tend to be a little bit more conservative. And also at an auction, like you said earlier, Pete, it's hard for them to argue with, you know, what, what what's market value. If there's been three people bidding or five people bidding and that's the price for a valuer to come along and say, oh, I disagree with that, that it, it, it doesn't happen very often. Um, I've, I've only seen it, I think, once or twice at auction. Yeah, very, very rare. So, Pete, we've covered comparable sales we've covered covered current market analysis we've we've talked about bank valuations a little bit but beyond all of that in particular when you're buying a home how do you figure out what it's worth to you that is really the price that you need to determine before you start negotiating or auction bidding because that value might be different to those other numbers that you've come across when you're approaching this Pete how do you how do you um, consider personal value I think that's uh, one of the the key points, and this is this goes back to the heart versus head point as well. For some people, that there are certain must-haves when they have a property brief. Um, school zones are a big one in Australia, but what about um, you know there are certain property types which always seem to command a premium, and they're often the ones that uh, deliver the the capital growth. Uh, this really simple stuff which you appreciate more as you become. A parent, for example, if you've got a really nice flat block of land and you can see from the kitchen, you know, you can see the garden, see what the kids are doing. Uh, if it's a nice quiet street that's safe for children, easily walkable to a school, there's certain things that people, especially families, will pay more for. Um, so I suppose this is where um, going through the process, we've come up with a valuation range and then we're going to take those uh, numbers and that's where you start thinking about making an offer. Now we're talking about today valuing property and not how to go through the negotiation negotiation process, which is a whole other subject in its own right. Um, but there, I think um, my starting point with a buyer would be to make a list of what are the things that the property must have uh, for your brief, and what are some of the things that it mustn't have because there are some deal breakers for people as well. So that would be my starting point um, because you'll find that a lot of the potential candidate properties are stripped out. If you've uh, really clearly identified the list of bullet points, what are the things that you must have and the things that are absolute deal breakers? Yeah, exactly right. And the more the more boxes that property ticks for you, 
the more likely you would be to potentially stretch your budget for that property. And when I say stretch the budget, I don't mean go over your budget. I don't mean um, go to the point where you don't have a dollar less or you actually can't afford it. But in some situations, you might have a bit of flexibility or maybe that property on paper is worth less than your top budget and you're trying to figure out how much is reasonable to stretch for. So when we're approaching the personal value, we are doing the comparable sales, doing the market analysis and saying, okay, this is what that property might sell for at the moment. But the way that we figure out the valuation to us and how I help clients work through all of this is coming back to our strategy and then coming back to how many boxes it ticks. How, how much do you love that property? When you buy a house, you are allowed to love a property. I want you to love a property. Um, or if it's one that you say, look, I, I do really like it. I don't want to buy it, but I'll be, I'll be totally fine if we miss out because I know there's another one. And if we do our research to say, okay, well, the chances of replicating this property are really low, then that gives us a higher reason to stretch for it. Or if it's going to probably come up again easily in another month or two, we stretch a little bit less. So we factor in all of these extra things to then say, okay, how much above the market analysis are we comfortable in putting towards this property? And it's not always going to be higher. Sometimes it'll be around that price point. Sometimes it might even be a bit less, especially if you need to do work to that property. But ultimately, if you go to auction or you start negotiating and your budget is pretty much the same as the comparable sales, then you're going into that just wanting a little bit of luck and not putting yourself in a competitive position. So by having a little bit of what we call a stretch buffer, um, and your personal value will determine how high you go. That's your competitive buffer, which you might use if you absolutely had to, if you really wanted that property with the goal of getting it for less. So approaching the valuation of a property, comparable sales, market analysis, and then your personal value. It's all three of those things that you have to work out as part of this process. And it's, um, yeah, it's easier said than done. And some parts of this process of data and research and some parts are around personal strategy and um and also you know being on the same page as your partner with all of this as well so it's mostly a science but there's a bit of art behind it as well um i mean this might be a bit off topic but occasionally uh, or not even occasionally probably every weekend we see these media articles that say uh, property is sold for uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars over reserve there was one just a couple of weeks ago i think it was uh, down your way maybe south yarra which was the reserve price may have been three million, and it sold for five or something of that nature. <laughs> I think it was a semi down there, nice property and everything, right. but you you never would have picked it uh, selling for two million dollars over reserve. But do, do you ever have properties that people bring to you, and you just say, oh, "I just can't put a value on this," or it's so hard to put it down to a narrow range because it's it's just totally different or totally unique. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yes. And that's really challenging. And then we have so many conversations around, okay, well, these are the few comparable sales that we can benchmark against, but let's talk about your budget and how good it is for you and whether we're prepared to spend that, how reasonable the vendor is, there's all these extra elements. But coming back to what you just mentioned, Pete, about um, these articles, it says this property has sold so far over reserve. In some situations, Properties do sell for ridiculous prices just because there's a bit of luck there for that vendor and they've had true people that have fallen in love with that property and they just keep going or they get competitive or there's <laughs> like a bit, a couple of egos there and just someone really wants to win. Um, it doesn't happen as much. But then the case which happens more often, Pete, is that quote range is lower 
than what that property was always going to sell for. In other words, it was underquoted based on comparable sales. And if you did your comparable sales analysis, you'd be able to really quickly, clearly see that. But then other times too, that vendor's reserve is just really reasonable. They're really motivated. They have no idea what the property's worth. They have to sell and therefore their reserve is much lower than what that property is worth. So just because you see a, prop, a news headline or a result saying 200 above reserve, well, maybe that reserve was 200 below where it should have been in the first place. So always take those things with a grain of salt. But yeah, sometimes you can get r- crazy, ridiculous runaway prices. And all that's another um, extra thing too. When you're doing your comparable sales analysis, if you see what I call an anomaly. So if you see a sale price and you're like, oh my gosh, that seems to have sold way higher than it should have or way lower than it should have, call the real estate agent and ask why. You've got to be a little bit careful here if you're calling them to say, hey, Pete, you sold that property recently. It seemed really cheap because you could be um, offending them a little bit, calling them a bad agent. <laughs> but sometimes I'll, I'll call, I'll say, hey, why did that one go really well or not perform? And they'll say, oh, that one needed a lot of work Or they might say we had, you know, crazy interest and the neighbor bought it and he was bidding against the other neighbor and they wanted to stay in the street. And in which case you've got to factor that into your analysis and just maybe move that one aside. Because if you take, um, if you lean on it too much, it's going to skew your results in your analysis. Whenever it comes to whether it's home buying or investing or whatever you're doing really, uh, where there's a big financial impact, is to try and be rational and have a bit of a common sense override. I saw a property the other day uh, that was listed as sold in Bondi for $1,400. And it's like, well, clearly this is a typo. <laughs> so I think uh, sometimes you've just got to be a little bit careful with some of the data. Um, sometimes, oh, definitely. I um, see that a lot. Oh, look, I've seen media articles about you know properties selling for uh, 10,000% capital growth. And it's like, well, you need to just like, use your brain sometimes and uh you know, sometimes what happens is a, a piece of a property has been sold off maybe yeah. uh, you know a bit of land or there's been a sale to a related party or family member that you know that doesn't necessarily represent the true market value so um yeah i mean but this yeah i mean this is really a, a general Pete, point just common sense override i guess oh totally and Pete, the um that's really relevant too because sometimes people get this uh, comparable sales Um, reports, which they'll download off the internet from some kind of web portal or the broker will give it to them. They are so inaccurate. They're an algorithm. That computer does not know if that property is renovated or in the best street or the worst street. And quite often, like you just said, there's data errors. It might think that property is on bigger land than it is or the comparable sales data is, is really wrong. And that happens quite a lot. So those reports, just be really careful of them. Even like those online price estimators, they're usually way off. So uh, don't get your hopes up. And if you rely on them, sometimes you can be too aggressive with your negotiating or sometimes come in too low. Useful up to a certain point, especially as technology improves, but there's no substitute for doing the work yourself. I mean, the number of times you get uh, an automated price report or market valuation, it's just way off, you know, and it's... um, you know, you can't really rely on that stuff uh, much as people talk about the influence of AI and property data. I mean, there's so much rubbish out there. You also mentioned uh, another uh, key point there, Amy, and that is particularly if you're looking to buy a family home, uh, we often get people say, I'm just going to wait for the market to decline. Um, but as you said, if you're the only person who's interested in buying a property, 
Um, the, the, the buyer is in the box seat. Um, you've got the upper hand. You can negotiate hard. But as soon as there's two buyers interested or multiple buyers, the whole dynamic has changed. And I think this is the, the flaw sometimes in people just waiting for market conditions to be just right or waiting yeah. for the market to have bottomed out. Uh, sometimes, uh, well, you can miss the bottom very quickly because the number of buyers in the market can change well, it can turn on a dime, really. And um, as soon as there's a couple of people interested, the whole balance of power in the negotiation has completely shifted. Oh, definitely. And it's interesting because some buyers need that social proof to validate their idea of value. They will do their research to the point where they get analysis paralysis or they'll say that property had an extra toilet, so it was worth an extra five grand. And by the way, that's another valuation mistake. You, you really need to not go down to the nitty gritty like that. Um, but in those cases, you know, as soon as another buyer comes along who's prepared to pay a higher price, well, all of a sudden they see value at that price because they've got the social proof and that other person supporting that value. So that's another common mistake too when valuing a property is is to come back to those that research and your own personal value. Don't wait or rely on someone else to validate or justify that. If your personality is that way and you need that, that's okay. And that's why auctions can sometimes be great because they're transparent. And, you know, if there's competitive bidding, then it can give you the confidence that that is market value. But for private sales or buying prior to auction, just know that you might not have that and all the more reason you have to do your research. And then just to kind of tie all of this up at the very end, when you're valuing a home versus an investment, you do need to approach it in a different way. You are allowed to have emotions for a home and, you know, stretch that a little bit more and have more of a competitive buffer, especially if you're going to live there for a long time versus an investment, you do need to be a bit more conservative and you shouldn't just buy it at all costs or have the same competitive buffer as a as an emotional home buyer would um, because you need to draw a line in the sand and if you don't get that one for the right price that makes sense from an investment perspective, you move on to the next one and you can as an investor. That's right. As an investor, uh, really, you're not compelled to buy any specific property and it really needs to stack up from an investment perspective. Um, now, we've talked about residential property today. Commercial is a whole other subject area and th that is potentially where people might look at things like uh, future cash flows and uh, yields and the leases that are locked in. That's a different different thing. And actually, if you're buying a block of units in the residential space, sometimes there's different ways that you might go about that. You could look at the the value of the individual units in the building. You could look at future cash flows. You could look at replacement value. There's a lot of different ways you can go about that. But actually, for most residential properties, it it's as simple as, um, as Amy said, right at the outset, you're really building a picture or a spreadsheet of all the comparable sales in the area, the street, the suburb, um, particularly the recent data is good um, because it's the most timely available information. And as Amy said, there's a bit of an art to this as well. You need to have a feel for what's happening in the market, chat to some agents, um, see where the buyer sentiment is at, what market conditions are doing. Um, so I think, Amy, that's a pretty good uh, overall wrap of how to value a property. Uh, so uh, thank Easier you. Easier said than done though, Pete. Gosh, it, we hopefully we make it sound simple, but it's, it's, it's hard. So if you're sitting down here at, at, and, and trying to approach this and feeling like, oh my gosh, I, I'm not doing it right or this is really hard, that, that's okay. And the more you do it, do some practice runs before you start going out to buy a property. Start doing some pretend ones and then see what those properties sell for. And the more you do, the more confidence you'll have 
doing it later on. So yeah, just acknowledge it's, it's, uh, we, we, hopefully when we make it sound straightforward, but it can be challenging, but you have to do it. Don't just, just cause it's hard. Don't not do it. <laughs> not easy to have the confidence. I think that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. People are always fearful of making a mistake, but as you said, the more you practice, the, the more confidence you build, especially if you do it in real time with some properties that are listed, you, know, you can do your comparable sales analysis and see where you think those properties are going to land. And, uh, and better to do it badly than not at all. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Amy, for joining today. And thank you everyone so much for tuning in. You can catch me at Pete Wargent Blogspot, my daily blog, or Pete Wargent on Twitter. And don't forget, of course, you can subscribe to the Rask podcasts on your favorite podcast player and indeed uh, these days on YouTube as well. Good head for radio. Um, <laughs> and myself anyway, not so much, Amy. But uh, Amy, where can people go to if they want to hear more about yeah. you, more about your content, more about your services? Yeah, so my buyer's agency is amylenardi.com.au and I also have a online course specifically for first home buyers, which is the firsthomeguidebook.com.au. Perfect. And um, always do please send us your feedback, send us your questions because we want to cover uh, the key issues that are facing people here and now in the property market. So uh, do get in contact. Links in the show notes. So thanks, Amy. And thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next episode. Thanks, Pete. See you later. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.